Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attention, attention, action this day. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, Dunkirk, week in a bit. With me, Al Murray and James Holland. How are you, James, this morning? Yeah, no, I'm fine, thank you. I'm, I've busily been measuring first thing this morning to see whether I can get the dodge in anywhere. <laughs> it's not looking great, but well, there's a will. <laughs> Might have to dismantle the back half. But that's all right. Winter storage. Right. So, so uh, today is May the 30th. So today we are talking about the events of May the 30th in the um, Dunkirk evacuation, the battle for Dunkirk, the end of the battle for France, of France, depends on which, um, uh, uh, which is your preference. Um, so what's happening, what's happening today, May the 30th, in, in this um, crucial, the most important week of history? Yeah, no, it's... it's, it's, it's it... It's a comparatively quiet day in terms of really big events, but it's but it's a day that sees the advantage definitely shift towards the evacuation. Yep. No question about it. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 another day where there is not a drop of wind. So it's another kind of the, the channel was looking like a like a mill pond. There are no yep. crashing breakers on the beach and, and people giving up and, and diving into it to drown themselves or anything like that. Yeah. Um, it, it's flat as a board and actually early in the morning it's low tide and uh, right. it is the 250th field company that start making a makeshift jetty so what they realise is actually we've abandoned all these, these vehicles we're not going to use them yep. we certainly don't want Jerry to use them anymore so let's just drive them into the sea and create a, and create a jetty along which <laughs> so that the guys can actually kind of walk along the, along the, um, along the roost and actually it proves really really quite successful yeah, and the Germans are finding it really, really hard going. That that window of opportunity to shut the door absolutely tight shut behind yeah. the retreating BEF, so that literally, you know, had the had the had the halt order that we've been talking about endlessly not happened, then I think it would have been you know thirty, thirty five, forty thousand that were were evacuated. Yeah, because that doesn't happen. Suddenly there is this opportunity, and the BEF are now behind. Um, behind the the perimeter, behind the, behind this canal line, which goes from Burgu, which is just yeah. south of um, Dunkirk, all the way to Furnas in yeah. uh, in Belgium, uh, and this canal is just the it's just such a good defensive barrier because yeah. the tanks can't against the either tanks or infantry. Because we what we've talked about is how this becomes an infantry battle because of the because of the because of the ground. Yeah, is that panzers panzers are necessarily held up by a canal. Um, yes. Especially if it's an army without any bridging equipment, which we've talked about before later in the war, is that you know the the, the British have Bailey bridges galore. Yeah. The Germans never develop anything like that. So no, they've got so, they've got little canoes and, and little paddle boats, yeah. and that, that's yeah. what they do. And rubber dinghies. They've got yeah. lots of those. Um, but you know, it, while your enemy is still on the other side, you don't really want to be crossing in a rubber dinghy. Yes, exactly. So even even though this is this is an infantry battle, this canal is a is a good enough obstacle. To 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 uh, keep infantry out too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, so it's, it's like a it's like the thickest of castle walls. Yeah. So even the so so the advantage the Germans have had with their sort of Panzer fist, it no gone. longer counts. Uh, and the, not and in this particular bit of the battlefield. Not the, yeah, ex- exactly. And and 
and what you can do with infantry after all is limited if there is a water obstacle. I mean, it's... it's Yes, it's, that's there's as, more that's as, water obstacles because, of course, it's yeah. very, as you, you know, it's incredibly flat land around Dunkirk. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. and a lot of it is below the is below the sea level. You know, you, as you get to Dunkirk and um, as you get to the to the beaches, you've got these dunes, and that that is the the dike effectively. Yeah. So behind it, it's very easy to flood. So you've got all these yeah. these little canals and watercourses and all the rest of it, and, and, and sluice gates and all the rest of it, and you can you can open up. And so all behind the canal line, and actually to a certain extent in some of the fields in front of them as well, it, there's kind of sort of low level kind of water. And it's yeah. not enough to drown him, but it's enough to make sure that vehicles will struggle to get through it. Um, yes, uh, yes. And so, so it makes it very hard. And, and what's really interesting is everyone at the high command and the German high command is starting to get really, really tetchy because obviously no one can slag off the Führer for, for inter- interfering. But, but von Braukic, who is the commander in chief of, um, of the of the army, uh, and Holder, Franz Holder, who is his chief of staff, who, who's basically the man who's kind of. He's the guy who sort of planned the whole thing. He's the overseer yeah. of the entire operation, uh, Halder is. Um, both of them are just absolutely spitting because yeah, they ap- know. That, you know they Halder, are, is, Halder is apoplectic at this point. Isn't he? His, diary, his diary is, him, is, 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 is as angry as he possibly could be, especially given, as you know, he, he has vacillated enormously about how he feels about Hitler to the point of having a pistol in his briefcase to... To, to off him in 1939, then changing his mind, having the original plan in place, realising it's not going to work, go, you know. So he has yeah. basically staked everything on this. Yes. Um, personally, politically, career-wise, the entire thing. Everything. And, and, and Hitler, who he gave the benefit of the doubt to, has, has fucked it up, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Halder is, 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 to put it mildly, a tortured soul. Uh, and this yeah. is because he's old school Prussian military. He's a staff officer and he believes yeah. in proper staff work. He believes yeah. in, in training and experience and he's got the lot. Um, yeah. uh, von Braukich is a bit wet. Um, and there is this amazing episode where where um, Hitler balls him out in November 1939. And yeah. he comes back and he's just shaking. I mean, you know, he's physically shaking at this tirade that he's just had to face from from Hitler Um, and it's not just the effects of Hitler's halitosis which is making him get the quivers (laughs) it's it's that kind of complete impact that someone has and actually I I sort of have some sympathy because I've been in situations where I've been in arguments with someone and I come back and I find myself shaking you know I'm really uptight and upset and overwrought about the whole thing you really care about cricket James (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I just don't understand why the Premiership is being allowed to run, um, uh, <laughs> which is much closer contact than than cricket. No. Where you, st- I mean, why the hell can't I field in my village in the middle of anyway? Listen, don't money, get honey. Anyway, anyway go so on. so, but 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 the other really interesting thing about this is that Halder kept a daily diary, which yeah. has been uh, published and which one can read, and it has such interesting insights. And I'm just going to read you one little bit here, which he says on the thirtieth. Um, von Braukic is in a really bad mood Halder's apoplectic and he says we lost time and so the pocket would have been closed at the coast if only our armour had not been held back as it is the bad weather has grounded our air force and now we must stand by and watch how countless thousands of the enemy are getting away to England right under our noses 
you know, and it's all they're all starting to finger point. And obviously, they, you know, the, the elephant in the room is that this one has been completely cocked up by by the, the boss. Yeah, by the boss, but no one can say that. So they all start kind of, you know, von Kleist gets a bit kind of tetchy with Guderian, and you know, yeah. von Halder's kind of sort of sending out. Because after after the war, when they're all in, center. after the war, when they're all interviewed by Little Heart, they all they they all blame each other, don't they? That that there's the, the they do, the, yeah. And Little Heart does this 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 famous book called The Other Side of the Hill, and what's really interesting about all those German generals is is they know that 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 Little Heart has a certain um, so Basil Littleheart was 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 a captain, but he's also a journalist. He's a writer. He's um, he's a thinker about about military matters, and and a controversialist he, he, too. So he, and a controversialist, he, he, but yeah. but he gains this reputation which is entirely undeserved. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, but 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 he does have a certain amount of influence. And after the war, he sort of goes around so saying, "Well, obviously, I'm the father of armoured warfare." Um, yeah. Uh, and 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 Guderian never sort of goes, "Oh yes, Basil. You know, had it not been for you, we'd have never been able to go through the Ardennes. I mean, your ideas were just brilliant." And obviously, what they're all hoping is that he's going to put a good word in. Um, yeah. And, and you know, get them off the hangman's noose. Um, and anyway, he you know he's got such an ego, little heart, that he kind of falls for a hook line sinker. But one of his yeah. great legacies is is that he did set up this fantastic art archive um yeah. at, at um king's college in london uh which is still there it's a little heart um center yeah. for military history and research or yeah yeah um and i use it a lot and it's and it is fantastic but um but yeah um um they but are he, he coaches but, but what's them interesting in, about halders but, you can see that this is not something that's that's kind of sort of it's not like the generals at war about the desert war uh, after the war, where they all start kind of no, no, no. Exactly, but that's exactly this my, is contemporary. That, this is at the that's moment. exactly my point because the reason the, the waters got uh, got muddy, didn't they, as to who was responsible for the halt order, uh, as a result of things like Little Heart, and and it's actually taken some re- quite recent scholarship to sort of tease out actually the sequence of events and what happened and and where the buck stops, which I think is quite interesting that you're dealing with a dictatorship and and everyone's wondering where the buck stops. It's yeah. well. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, but yeah. so so it's quite true though. So by but th- th- there is this. I mean you know we 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 when we started on the um, uh, with Admiral Ramsey on the twenty seventh, it was 40, 36, 48 hours. This lodgement's going to hold out for. You'll get thirty five thousand men out. We're now several days later. It's quite clear that the BEF have done enough, uh, as well as the halt order. That since the halt order resumed, they've done have been rescinded. They've done enough to hold the Germans up created enough delay and bought yes. enough time for the evacuation to get established yeah and for the and for the defensive perimeter to be to be put into place and as you said at the start of this that's advantageous to the, de- to, the to the defenders i mean it's quite interesting is that the bf when they know what they have to defend <clears throat> um and we talked about this with pierre the other day you know the backs to the wall thing with the with the allied soldiers at the armies at this point kicks in doesn't it and when they yeah. when 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 there's when there's a clear line and a clear thing that you don't want to happen they actually turn into something quite effective don't they yeah 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 absolutely um there's also sort of various political machinations going on back at home yeah. halifax obviously is you know he's he's toast by this this point <laughs> um um but but joe kennedy is is, is mischief making um yeah. and he is the british ambassador uh, he's the american ambassador to london um, yep. He is the father of JFK and Robert Kennedy, and he's an yep. absolute shyster. Um, he's a Boston Irish Catholic. He's he's a ex bootlegger. He's dodgy as hell. 
Um, he's made absolutely millions upon millions, um, and he's he's as bent as they come, and he's a deeply unpleasant character. And he's also a defeatist, and he's pro-Nazi, and massively anti-commie. Um, and he's saying everything. And one of the reasons he's he's given this post is as a kind of sort of it's sort of originally it's sort of get him out of the way, but still make him feel important because yeah. he's he's backed Roosevelt and he's been a kind of you know about Democrat and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but once the war starts, it you know the appointment is just quickly reveals itself for what it is, which is an absolute disaster because yeah. he's just sending out the wrong message. Um, and he actually says to the to the British government, I really think you should send all your gold reserves to Canada. Um, and that goes down really badly. And on this day, uh, what well, Thursday, the 30th of May 1940, he visits the king to hand over a message of support from President Roosevelt, um, which you know, he hands over rather reluctantly. And the yeah. king greets him in full military kit and says, you know, um, um, you know, actually, we've now lifted over 80,000 men. Um, and Kennedy well, sort of sort looks uh, at his uh, shoes. Actually, we, 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 we've now lifted over yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. eighty thousand men because of his stammer. Yes, and then when he when he recovers his his stammer, he then says, "Just think, all this death and destruction due to the whim of one man." Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I'm such a He's probably thinking, I, you know, back in the day when I was when kings were kings, I'd have been able to do all that, but I'm not allowed anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I um, mean, am I right in thinking? So, what are the labour labour politicians doing? So, Attlee and Greenwood have also been. They've lent their weight to, to Churchill and the cabinet crisis. Am I right in thinking they had to go to the Labour Party conference to to get? to sort of get permission to join the government in the first place? Is that not right? Uh, uh, no, they, they, they don't go to the conference. They, they go to a sort of commi- a committee to say... Uh, and one of the reasons why Chamberlain is forced to resign is because it's because the demands are for an, a, a, a government Coalition. of national unity. Yeah, yeah. And Labour will not serve... Will not sit down with... But, Chamberlain. And yet, and yet, and yet, they will sit in cabinet with him once he's gone as prime minister. Which yes. I think is quite, yeah. which is quite interesting because there's some interesting, there's sort of interesting red, you know, uh, you know, to use the red lines or whatever, or th- lines they won't cross. And yeah. one of them is they won't sit in a Chamberlain cabinet, but they will sit in cabinet with Chamberlain, which yes. I think is a really interesting because after all, it's quite clear that what you what what happens in the cabinet crisis is that it it's a Conservative Party issue. Isn't it? That's the that's the problem for Churchill. It's Halifax, and he needs Chamberlain's backing to to strong arm Halifax, doesn't he? Or he or he involves Chamberlain in the decision well, of no, co-opting. Well, Labour say they would serve under they would so so when it's clear that Ch- that Chamberlain is going to have to fall on his sword. Yeah, it's like everyone's looking around, going, "Well, who could be Prime Minister?" And the, and the first name out of the hat is Halifax. Yeah, and the second name out of the hat is is Churchill. And there is no one else really who's got the stature and experience. Clout, I mean, experience yeah. to do it. The problem with Halifax is 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 that he's a peer, but that can be solved. Yeah. Um, the, the the problem is Halifax himself. In is that he just doesn't want to do it. He knows he's not capable of of doing it, and he spends the whole of the ninth of May and the morning of the tenth of May feeling physically sick at the prospect. And that's. And that, of course, is before um, uh, the battle for France begins and things go really, really pear shaped. So, so he right. doesn't even he doesn't even want to do it. He doesn't when want to do looking... it on the ninth. Um, yeah, but and, so... and it's clear on on in the middle, you know. And then on the morning of the tenth, um, 
you know, it's clear that the the, the attack it started. Has started. Yes, but 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 it's not clear. They haven't got across the Sudan. He he's he no. doesn't feel he's up to it before the strategic earthquake has even occurred that that, that we've talked about. So. No. So, so that's quite interesting, isn't it? That that he, he doesn't even want the responsibility of the of the you know four year blockade war thing that the Allies are expecting I mean, you know, to he, do. He's, he's physically feeling yeah. sick. Nauseous. It's just really, really. It's interesting because then, because then, let you know, then when the thi- when things have gone really pear shaped, he he wants he starts throwing his weight around politically about what Britain can and can't do. What he thinks yeah. Britain can and can't do so it's quite interesting the sort of, the, because we keep talking we've, we've talked a lot this week about how the fall of france you know it, uh once the die is cast by may 15th really is everyone's having to readjust the way they look at the world and you just wonder if if halifax had 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 the stomach for it may 9th and on may the 10th it the problem had been solved and he was prime minister what he would have done if he'd been running the cabinet um this week I just, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. It would have been. It w- yes. You I know, seeing that, that, seeing that that's he what makes you shudder. That's that's the it, thing. It really, did, but seeing as he balked at the responsibility of the war as it was intended to be fought. Yes. Do, do, do you see what I mean? And I, I think see exactly that's a, what you're saying. That's yeah. a and really I, I interesting. It's a, it's a line really terrifying. In, it's a really terrifying prospect. I mean, yeah, because because. There's, I think you can't you can't argue that what he would have done was gone. Oh well, you know it's not worth the candle, which is basically what he was saying, wasn't he? His argument was it's just not worth it. If we stay out, if we get out now, stay out, we can preserve the empire, keep things as we are. Isn't there the story that he goes to his he goes goes to his uh, goes home for the weekend or something and looks at the rolling hills and all that and thinks this <laughs> England will be lost, blah blah blah. And yep. you think, yeah, you've, you you. I think Andrew Roberts's first book was a biography of Halifax. Called the yeah. Holy Fox, which is what, yeah. what Churchill called him, yeah. and he was quite pious, and he was old school patrician and yeah. very upright, very stiff. Um, he had this withered one hand, didn't he, which yeah. had prevented him from taking proper, you know. He, so he was he he was militarized in the First World War, but he he was you know behind the lines doing staff work. Yeah, he was a desk waller, and he doesn't have that appetite for or experience of war. Yeah. Whereas for Churchill, it's is just you know it's what gives him his absolute kind of beating heart it's, is is, yeah, is, is yeah. you know I mean nothing gives him a bigger kick than being in this kind yeah. of sort of this sort of life or death situation and and, yeah. and 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 Greenwood and the Labour Party say they will serve in a cabinet under Halifax or Churchill, so it's a choice of the two. And then when Halifax rules himself out, it's kind of de facto. Churchill, um, and thank goodness for that. But but in yeah. this, but in May, that you know, Attlee and, and Greenwood are they're they're too new, they're too inexperienced at this level. They don't have the political clout. They 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 very quickly generate that clout. Yeah, and they well, become they, really key parts of of the war cabinet. Seize the, the labor. The Labour Party completely seizes the opportunity to to make itself um, uh, essential and to offer what it offer what it can in terms of. Um, uh, you know, trade union cooperation, all that sort of stuff. They get they jump on the opportunity to make themselves look viable and responsible as, as yeah. government because the last time they the last time they had to go, it all goes it all went horribly wrong under Ramsay McDonald. So they're yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're exactly. they, you know the, the, I mean if, if, you know all of these. I mean it's interesting because you know all week we've seen these arguments about uh, con- contemporary arguments about Dominic Cummings and people saying why are you politicising this because it's politics 
everything's politics, even in a situation like this, even in a situation like mm. the, the, the week of the Dunkirk evacuation. Yes. People are, politicians think like politicians regardless of yep. the circumstances. And they're always thinking, you know, how do I how do I finesse this? How do I find my way through? How do we show that we're viable and that we offer what people actually need? And that, you know, yep. that's that's. That's the that's the nature of that beast, and I think yeah. it's you know I think this is I think what's really interesting about this week is this is the week where you know and we talk about the tactical sphere, the operational sphere, and the and the strategic sphere, and we talk about the, but this is the week where it pops up into the up into the political, where it changes and and the the considerations aren't do I have enough ships, do I have aren't necessarily those decisions because yeah. you've got to sell whatever you're going to do to the population. And, yeah. and this is a democracy, you know, in a way it wasn't in 1914, you know, even, yeah. even that recently, even the last time yeah. the, the UK went through a thing like this. And I think, I think that's what's really interesting. And I think it's maybe the only week where the politics is, is the tail, is the tail that wags the dog for a bit. Yeah. In the whole war. I just, I mean, I always thought, you know, when you, I mean, obviously, you, you know, we've read the John Lucas book, The Five Days yeah. in May. Um, and, Which and can't recommend uh, highly enough. No. Uh, and then yeah. I got the, uh, when I was doing my own Battle of Britain book, I, I then got those cabinet minutes. And you, you can read verbatim yeah. what each person is saying. You can see how the, uh, the how the thing, although it's told in the third person, you know, it, it, it doesn't yeah, yeah, make yeah. anything to put it into the first person. Yeah, uh, they're and, amazing. Those cabinet notes, aren't they? I mean, well, it really, really is because you know the when, Home Secretary when you're said, reading it, you are your heart is just beating a bit quicker because you're just yeah. thinking, "Blimey!" You know, this really yeah. is tense stuff. You know, on on the on the outcome of this conversation in this room in Number yeah. Ten or the Admiralty, where they were both the, the the cabinet meetings were being held at this particular time, not incidentally in the cabinet war rooms underneath the ground, <laughs> um, um, is the future of Britain is is yeah. lying. I mean, it's just absolutely. It just doesn't get bigger yeah. stakes than this. It, it really doesn't. But by the thirtieth of May, that crisis is gone, and now it is purely a, a military operation again for the time yeah. being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and that's that's what's so fascinating about this week. And you've yeah. got on opposite sides of the channel, you've got Hitler making his daft decision because that's the way politics worked in Germany. It interferes in the strategic and therefore the operational, therefore the tactical. And then on the other side of the channel, Churchill making his political decisions the way he does that then flows down the same way. And in yeah. fact, Churchill's able to make those decisions the way he does in, in, in that week because the tactical end of the BEF is holding up. So what you've got to remember, there's 20,000 men on the perimeter there holding this perimeter. And they're basically... It's it's much like your grandfather at Harzerbrook or those at Cassell. That they're, they're they are there to enable the bulk to get away. Yeah, and 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 for those of them, you know, they know that, that their chances of getting away are not great. I mean, it it, it, it that in itself, isn't it? Is is I mean the the I mean it, and this isn't just the the brigadiers of the and the lieutenant colonels and the majors and the captains. Going, yeah, all right, we'll we'll get stuck in. That's that's everybody. Everybody, you know, you're soldiering by consensus there, aren't you? Um, yeah, <laughs> if, uh, but, but also you're no longer you're no longer part of a big advance up to the dial. You're no, no. you're no longer part of a big machine. You are you are the lifeline for the bulk of the British Army and yeah. potentially 
Britain's fortunes in the entire war. Yeah. And I guess that kind of focuses minds a bit. And I think, think you know, what what is amazing is how well they all stick at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and you know, when you read memoirs and diaries and letters and stuff and, and, and oral testimonies of people who were there, they all knew that this was high-stakes stuff. Yeah. Meanwhile, other people are kind of still arrived, stumbling, you know, having had their treks in from the, that, that lozenge that has come in. Yeah. You know, they're now all behind there and they're still arriving at the beaches and, and arriving over the dunes. And there is this incredible beach with yeah. tens of thousands of people. And on that morning of the 30th of May, yes, it's, a, it's flat as a mill pond on the channel, but there's a low mist which does stop any flying that morning and, and and what you're seeing is all these figures that look like spectres you know they're, they're yeah. like ghost-like figures with the silhouetted in the kind of in the gloom of this low mist over Dunkirk whilst you're still getting the smells and the sounds of it, that oily smell salt uh um seaweed sweat alcohol petrol Cordite, yeah. you know what a cocktail! What a what a what an amazing atmosphere that must have been then. You know, frightening, well, a, terrifying, awesome, all those things all a, at once. A, ch- a chunk of despair, but also hope. I mean, this is the this. I mean, Absolutely, if you, yeah. you you want your full on, how many how many men are are evacuated on May the thirtieth? So May the thirtieth on this day, fifty eight thousand eight hundred twenty three. You see, that's going some, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. What, actually, how many div- actually more from the beaches. So twenty nine. How many divisions is that? How beaches. many divisions is that in effect? Well, that's that's getting off of four. Yeah, three or four divisions, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fifteen thousand so division. You know, that's starting to really that's starting to really matter, isn't it? Um, yeah, that, uh, that, that's good numbers. That's and good so numbers. and so we're all kind of on a hundred thousand, more than a hundred thousand as a total by now, aren't we? I think. Yeah. On the totalizer, on the Dunkirk evacuation. Yeah, so it's eighty thousand like by a the blue end peep, of the twenty liter thermometer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yes. We're now at about one hundred thirty thousand. Wow, wow. So it's well, starting to look. As I say, it's, it's starting to shift. On, on it's on shifting. Great. So that's the events of May the thirtieth. Thanks for listening. So far, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be joined by Seb Cox, head of the Air Historical Branch, which is the RAF's. He's the RAF's historian. What do you people want? Achtung, achtung. Hello, dear listeners. I hope you've been enjoying the content James and I have been serving up this past year. If you have enjoyed it and you felt so inclined, could we ask you to consider voting for us in this year's podcast awards? There's a special award that's got nothing to do with juries and industry professionals. It's called the Listener's Award. You need to go to British Podcast Awards slash vote. Then put in We Have Ways and up we pop. Prove you're not a robot, you know you can do it, and make sure to confirm your vote in the email they sent to you. Many thanks from me and James and everyone at the We Have Ways team. We've talked um, about the Army and the Navy, so, well, it really, well, there's only other one service to talk to, isn't there, James? Yeah, yeah, it's got to be the RF. I mean, you know, you know, the you, know, you know the little place it has in my heart as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Including Spitfires delighted. and Hurricanes. Spitfires and Hurricanes, but the Mark One, of course. And, and obviously, um, thrilled to see that the uh, the Defiant has been rehabilitated this week <laughs> in a new book that claims actually it was really good. I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. that third voice you heard there, the yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we are delighted to be joined by uh, Seb Cox. Who? Um, what's your What's your actual title? Because we've had some very grand people on. What's your title, Seb? My formal title is Head of the Air Historical Branch. Brackets RAF. Close brackets. Crikey! Yeah, he's the top man. There is there is no there is no other higher power and source of information to, about RAF matters than than Seb. And he is my go-to wow. person on many so matters, we're, we're, as, as he has very patiently uh, um, put up with my badgering over the over the decades. Are you some of the arduer that the RAF has to endure on its way to the Astra then, James? He's definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're very patient, um, Seb, and it's much appreciated. Uh, I want you to know that. Uh, now, Seb, um, uh, aside from the defiance, critical and crucial role in the Dunkirk um, <laughs> campaign of, of May to June 1940, one of the things one of the things we've talked about, um, uh, uh, James and I have talked about frequently on the podcast, is basically how the, how he feels, and it's in his it's in his Battle of Britain book. Really, do recommend the audio book um, that I read. Is that, um, that, that this is for him when the Battle of Britain in effect starts, when Fighter Command gives give, gives up um, defending France and starts defending directly British uh, Britain and British interests. In effect, it's, it's, this is when the Battle of Britain begins. Do, do you think? Do you think that assertion stacks up or? Or is it a crock of nonsense? Or, or is this a different? Or is this a, a different sort of halfway campaign between the two? Uh, I, I think, yeah, probably a halfway campaign is a reasonable way of describing it. Um, because apart from anything else, I mean, we're we're obviously going to talk about Dunkirk, um, mm. but people tend to believe that Dunkirk is the end of the Battle of France and is the end of British involvement in the Battle of France. And it's not. Uh, 17 RAF fighter squadrons, I think it's 17, that's from memory, so, um, you know, I I may have the figure slightly wrong, um, continued to operate over France after the evacuation from Dunkirk had finished. Um, So, and there are still, there are still RAF units in France. They don't pull out. The last RAF unit, I think, from memory again, pulls out on the 18th of June, where Dunkirk finished on the 4th. You know, so this idea that the Battle of France has effectively finished with the evacuation from Dunkirk for the British, even that isn't correct. And these are fighter squadrons Yeah, well, yeah. But the bombers are operating over France as well. They, they yeah. haven't stopped. And people forget that the bombers operate throughout Dunkirk. Uh, you know, there's a lot of RAF... There's a lot of RAF bomber sorties, particularly by the light bombers from <clears throat> two groups, the Blenheims, um, trying to uh, operate to to disrupt German operations around Dunkirk. I suppose my argument on this is just that... that it is during the battle of um, it's during the air battle of, of Dunkirk that fighter command enters the fray. Uh, fighter command is designed specifically to defend Great Britain. Up until that point, it's been the air striking force and all the other RAF components that have been sent to France. So suddenly, it is suddenly fighter command is there and taking part of it. And and my point about the battle of Britain and the wider battle of Britain is that the battle of Britain starts when. Britain directly becomes imperiled and it ends when that imperiling ceases to be such a major threat. And so that's why I kind of was arguing that, I, 
you know, it was when I started researching it really, and I suddenly started thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, Dowding and Newell are going around saying, you know, we've got to watch it, we've got to be careful, um, because the whole point of fighter commanders is supposed to defend Britain's airspace and defend Britain. But if we're kind of losing, you know, losing planes over France, then that's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And yet, fighter command does get drawn into it. So. That was why it suddenly occurred to me that maybe one should kind of reconsider it and, and consider that the Battle of Britain considers starts in parallel to the Battle of France in that last week of May 1940. Well, yeah, there's there's some merit to that. Of course, one of one of the other issues, <laughs> <laughs> one of the other issues is that from the but 10th of much. May, <laughs> well, some some. One of the other issues is, that, of course, from the 10th of May, um, you know, fighter command squadrons keep getting drawn into the Battle of France, um, as you well know. And, yes. and that, that is what leads eventually to Dowding's letter. But, of course, his famous letter of the 16th of May. But, of course, the, 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 other, thing, the other thing that people either don't know or conveniently forget is he, he wrote almost precisely the same letter many many months before when uh, <laughs> government policy changed and of course government policy uh, again this is one of those grand strategic things that people tend to uh, either forget or or they don't know government british government grand strategic policy changes when the germans renege on the munich agreement in early 39 Suddenly, you know, any idea that Hitler can be trusted, that he'll keep two agreements that he himself has signed, is out of the window. And for the first time in UK history, the British government introduces conscription during peacetime. Never happened before. This Chamberlain is still PM. We're going to have conscription in peacetime. You start serious staff talks with the French. The whole grand strategic picture changes. The Brits have gone from trying to keep the French at arm's length to this is now uh, highly likely to turn into a situation where we have to go to war. We better get serious. We need to bolster our alliance with the French or in effect actually turn it into a proper alliance. And of course, one of the results of that is we're going to have to provide a much more significant air component, especially since they promptly beef up what will become the BEF quite substantially. It goes up from divisional level, effectively, to, to cause. Um, and so suddenly the BEF air component is now going to be have to be bigger because it's protecting uh, and cooperating with a bigger army component. Well, the only source for single-engine fighter uh, elements to be included in the BEF's air component is fighter command. Yep. So all of the pre-war planning for the expansion <clears throat> schemes, famous, you know, A to whatever letter of the alphabet you want to end up with. It's F, isn't it, or K or something? Well, no, we, I think we get to, we get to, well, well I've forgotten, M, I think, is yeah, the maybe. final one. Uh, they... They are all predicated on on building up a deterrent bomber command and a reasonably powerful fighter command. And suddenly, nobody had been saying, hang on, we need a tactical air force to go to France. Well, now you have. No one had even really thought about tactical 
what a tactical air force would look like or what, what close air support would look like, had there? There was no, no doctrine or anything right? If you have... Well, there's some doctrine, but... Uh, and actually, the RAF's doctrine pre-war reads pretty sensibly. Uh, and experience, because that, that's, what it, that's what the RFC was doing uh, to, to an extent. I mean, not, not with the same sort of uh, uh, punching power, as it were, that you see with, with the, the, where tactical air power ends up. But you know the, the RFC was integrated effectively with the army, wasn't it? And it's it's the it's the, the and then the RAF is the sort of knobs on independent version of that. So there's all there is there's plenty of experience of doing this stuff. So so the doc, the doctrine or the experience must reside somewhere. Um, uh, it does. It, it's just it's just we've not we've decided ten year rule all that sort of stuff. We're not going to get involved in this sort of thing anymore. And like you say, it's it's March it's March thirty uh, nine, isn't it? Where suddenly oh hang on a minute. Ah, the whole you know. the whole picture has changed, and that's when Dowding writes his first letter that says, "Please don't send my hu- my Hurricane squadrons to France." Well, of course, the chief of the air staff and the air staff say, "The government's grand strategic decision is we're going to send a bigger army to France." The RAF is not in a position at that point to say, and the chief of the air staff is not in a position to say. Oh, well, we don't think that's a very sensible idea, so you can't have any of our fighter squadrons. <laughs> Fast forward, May the 16th, 1940. Um, he, he he almost writes the same letter. Not quite, but it, it is effectively the same letter. Cause he's, you know Churchill will have to read this. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, your Lawrence Olivier. Uh, can you do your Lawrence Olivier impression yes. of Dowding? Uh... Yeah, I've done it. I've done it once, but I'm going to do it again because I'm so pleased with it. That's precisely why I wrote it. <laughs> so, pretty good. so he. So does he say to his secretary, "You know that letter I uh, knocked up." Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Can you find uh, me a year... file that I, I filed yeah. that one on? Uh, if you go back to September '39, like bottom drawer. <laughs> Yeah, you'll find it in the filing cabinet somewhere under... under Letters to influence PM. <laughs> yes. Stroppy letters addressed to Chief of the Air Staff. Was he in the habit of firing off stroppy letters? One gets the impression he probably was. Yeah, he was... He was. He didn't make them quite as stroppy as Bert Harris, but they... they, they yeah. <laughs> they had a certain... So, but your your argument, and it's a, an incredibly convincing one. Um, it's not even a, a debate, really. It's a fact. Is is that Cyril Newell, who is the chief of the air staff, his letter that follows is has far more weight than anything that Dowding ever sends. Yeah. Well, l- let's be quite clear. Dowding sends his letter. Right. He sends it as an official letter. So, uh, as famously, you know. Lawrence Olivier in the 69 film, the Under Secretary of State for Air. So, so this is what in RAF parlance was termed an official letter, as opposed to a demi-official letter, which air marshals write to each other where they say, you know, Dear Bert, or even Dear CAS. Uh, an official letter is addressed to the Under Secretary of State, so a, a political figure, and it says, this is my considered official opinion. Okay, so Dowding's the 16th of May letter is an official letter. Newell obviously sees the letter. Now, Newell could have taken the letter to the Chiefs of Staff and said, well, you know, uh, Air Marshal Dowding said this in uh, in March as well. 
But of course, this, this does not take sufficient account of the grand strategic picture. Uh, and it's because Newell says in his covering note to the Chiefs of Staff, which then goes to the Cabinet, Newell says, I believe that a point has now been reached where sending more fighter squadrons to France will not affect the outcome of the battle. If he had believed that sending more fighter squadrons to France from fighter command would have changed the course of the Battle of France, i.e. potentially stopped the German offensive, I have absolutely no doubt that Newell's covering note would have said, this is the opinion of the CNC, AOC and C of fighter command, but I don't agree with it. So where had he got that judgment from? Uh, well, he's how, got how it from, he, he's making the judgment on, he, like everybody else, is seeing what is happening in France. The yeah. disintegration, you know, of the French French army at Sedan, you know, the, the speed at which the Germans have started to race across towards the Channel ports. He can see that the French, not only are the Germans moving very fast, but he can see that the French are not moving very fast, yeah. that they're not making any sort of effective counterstrokes or counteroffensive, and and that um, their high command is is frankly in a bit of a state of disarray, and that they're not in in and of themselves in a position to reverse what seems yeah. to be happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting though that he got the message, isn't it? Because because you've still got other people unsure and. You know, at this stage, still Churchill politically thinking, because he's thinking in politic, political terms as well. He's thinking, how can we bail the French out? He's putting pressure on the French to to counterattack, to come up with something. Yeah. The Vagon the uh, and, and plan, yet, which was supposed to produce this great counterattack, yeah. back yeah. south. It never yes. quite actually managed to happen. No, never, never. It, well, it, it, worse than that, I think, James. I don't know if you It didn't even get organised in the first place. Exactly. It never, it never. It was a total non-starter. Yeah, yeah, but Newell, Newell had clocked, had, had got, had the penny yes. had dropped for him at least. Yes. So he's then he's then able to to say, I agree with Dowding, and uh, we we need to listen to, to to the guy who's actually going to have to solve this problem when it arises. Correct. Um, and of course, there are other voices. Air Marshal Barrett, C and C of the British Air Forces France, is sending. Uh, Exactly contrary messages back to London. Uh, we need to send more fighter squadrons to try and stabilise the situation. Because they've all been shot up on the ground, so it would be a really good idea to send some more over Well, yeah, to be shot know. up on the ground. Yeah. Um, so so Barrett, another air marshal, is, is sending exactly contrary messages into the chief of the air staff. Uh, and again, Newell's judgment here is, well, I don't think Barrett is correct. We cannot restore this situation uh, as easily as is being suggested, merely by by sending good squadrons after bad, if you like. So re he don't reinforce failure. He correct. It, it, simple as that. Yeah. Gosh, fascinating. Uh, 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 because after all, I suppose Barrett's thinking, I can't admit I'm licked. Um, uh, well, on some level, isn't it? Uh, uh, at one level, yeah. But Barrett is still. But Barrett's operational responsibility is still. He is still the AOC and C of British Air Forces in France, and his remit is to try yeah. 
and yeah, turn yeah, yeah, things absolutely. around in France. To stabilise the battle, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, you know, he, he, from his operational perspective, and, and this is the important point, <clears throat> Dowding's perspective is AOC and C fighter command. That's why he writes the letters he does in, you know, March 39, early 39, he writes the first letter saying, if you send my hurricane squadrons to France, he actually uses the analogy of it will be a tap through which the hurricane squadron reinforcements to France will flow once the war starts. And, and yeah. in that sense, he's, he's correct. That's right, yeah. Uh, Barrett, as an operational commander in France, has that operational commander's perspective. If I'm yeah. going to restore this situation, I will need more resources. They're so they're just on, doing their jobs, yeah. In, 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 in effect, and it, and then it, but then it's Newell's job to 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 make the judgment call. So it's not a judgment call really from Dowding. It's Dowding doing doing his doing his job, protecting his assets, protecting his his uh, yeah. patch. I mean, it, it's Dowding that, fighting his corner. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a better way of putting because protecting his patch makes it sound a bit sort of um, yeah. the the insincere in a way if you see what I mean whereas obviously he's, he's fighting he's, no no yeah. he's, he's, he's quite sincere but yeah yeah uh, yeah you can I think reasonably say that um, Dowding's grand strategic vision was was probably lacking and I yeah. say that not because he's fighting his corner and saying it's perfectly reasonable to state uh, this is what I consider to be the minimum number of squadrons that are required for me to perform my role. But it is the chief of the air staff and the air staff's job to assess all of the competing commands, all of the, the requirements of all the competing commands when resources are not sufficient to give everybody. Nobody ever has everything that they want. Yeah. Yeah. Never happens, especially at the beginning of a war. It doesn't even really happen at the end of a war, although you no. get a hell of a lot closer. Yeah. Um, what Dowding, I think, tends to fail to do is to appreciate the problem of people like Newell. And, uh, and you know, people people criticise Harris for, for writing similar stroppy letters about his resources being tranche to go off to to fight the Battle of the Atlantic. But he's only doing exactly the same thing that Dowding yeah. does. But Dowding is a great hero for doing this. Whereas Bert Harris is a great, you know, he, he's, a, oh, he's an anti-hero. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah. And of course, he's even ruder than Dowding when he writes his letters. <laughs> it, he yes, calls, he really is. He calls he, yes, command an obstacle to victory, which, which is, <laughs> is a little bit rich, I have to say. But um, but but it's also I mean Barrett is in charge of of all air forces and the, there is the um, air component of the BEF and then there is the advanced air striking force, but 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 many of the fighters that that okay they they are taken from fighter command to join the advanced air striking force but at that point they're no longer in fighter command they're part of the air, advanced air striking force. That's true. But but, but, but over Dunkirk, you have got fighter command as fighter command operating over Dunkirk. You have. Um, and and post the 10th of May, further reinforcing squadrons are taken from fighter command to go to France. And the plan 
before the Germans uh, invaded was to send four uh, initially. In fact, initially they sent three. Why? Well, because the Germans have now invaded Norway as well. So one of the four, <laughs> funny old thing, is now earmarked to go off north to fight the Germans in Norway. And a because, lot of good they're going to do. Bec- well, again, but if you send the British Army to Norway, it needs yeah, need air some cover. air cover. So, funny old thing. I mean, we send yep. a gladiator squadron. Well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> you know, but there's a hurricane. 46 squadron goes to Norway. Yeah. They do a Yeah, it's not just job. gladiators, is it? No. No, no. 46 hurricane squadron goes to Norway under under the later Air Chief Marshal Bing Cross, squadron leader well, at yes, the time. Yes, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. And they, 46 they, squadron is an eminent RAF squadron, isn't it? Uh, and it, it fights. Is that the fighting cocks? Uh, I don't think I can't remember. No, forty three is the fighting fox. Ah. Anyway, they go to anyway, Norway. They fight. fight reasonably well, given the situation that they're faced with, which is pretty horrendous. They then no spares hardly any fuel. They then perform the magnificent job of getting their remaining aircraft off and landing them on HMS Glorious. Never been done before. Hurricanes yeah. with no arrestor hooks. These are not sea hurricanes. They get them all down on the deck of the carrier. And wonderful, the Royal Navy then proceeds to ensure that HMS Glorious meets Sean Austin Eisenhower and yeah. disappears <laughs> below the waves. Yeah. Um, thanks very much. And Bing Cross is one of only two pilots to survive the sinking. You yeah. know, sadly, most of the guys die when the Glorious goes down. Uh, yeah. He survives for two days in a Carly float. Uh, it's an amazing story, isn't it? Is that it is. I mean, the, the thing that's striking me about this is how flexible the RAF is at this point. Well, we're going to have to, and a lot, a lot of this is to do with grass airfield capable aircraft. That you're what you what you don't need is vast stretches of tarmac um, to, to move your planes about, do you? But but that they're able to go. All right, we'll deploy we'll, we'll deploy four more squadrons in France or wherever you want them. The flexibility is, I think, is given what the RAF is, which is. You know, it's not the people think of the pilots, but every aircraft comes with a host of crew and then uh, and clerks. And, you know, I mean, my father's army view of the RAF is full of blokes. The RAF is just full of blokes. Endless bloody blokes is what he says about the RAF. But but how flexible it is. Yeah, we we need a squadron in Norway. We need some in France. It's I think it's really striking in this conversation. This thing is really striking me. And obviously, there's a bit of the RAF that goes, yeah, okay, no problem. We'll we'll pack it all up and we'll send it somehow. It's incredible. Yeah, um, there are elements of the RAF that are pretty flexible, um, and it it does require quite a substantial tail. Yeah, um, of course, and. And indeed, um, at the end of the French campaign, um, that tail is effectively—I uh, mean, not the not the men, but the equipment. Much of the equipment is left left in France. One million pounds. This is nineteen forty million pounds, not twenty twenty million pounds. Yeah. One million pounds worth of equipment is left behind in France. Which at is the a end lot. of the campaign. That's Gosh. an awful lot. And yeah. so the, the Germans then, I suppose, take that and take it, have a look at it, take it apart. Yeah, figure they, out they, what, yeah. yeah. Take sure it to they, Russia. Yeah. I'm sure they <laughs> use some of it. Yeah. yeah. But Seb, to go back to 
to Dunkirk and the air battle for Dunkirk. So there is this, this perception at the time that where's the bloody RAF, all the rest of it. Yeah. And uh, um, but actually, I mean, my reading of it is that the RAF perform exceptionally well over Dunkirk. I think they do pretty well. Uh, I mean, the, the balance sheet is the balance. By my reckoning, two hundred nineteen Luftwaffe aircraft shot down. Uh, with a well, loss of 331 air crew to 189 stroke 198, 195. Yeah, there's, there's always arguments about figures. Always. But, but, but it's a ballpark figure. They're, they're, not, they're not far off. The RAF uh, fighter command loses about approximately 100 aircrafts. Um, the, the usual figure quoted is 106. The figure for the Germans fluctuates wildly. Um, so in, in the fighting over Dunkirk, some, uh, some of the sources claim the Germans lost slightly fewer, uh, than the RAF. So in the, in the nineties, um, and again, one of the problems is it's a bit difficult to disentangle Luftwaffe losses elsewhere in France from Luftwaffe losses over Dunkirk. So um, I'm always wary about, you know, trying to say who's won and who's lost in that sort of situation because the figures okay, but, quite frequently. But but but, but one of the, one of the key things that one of the key developments here is is that obviously that that Goering has boasted that Luftwaffe can stop the British from getting back. They don't, and one of the reasons of that is because the Luftwaffe has put huge amount of store in. Dive bombing, and on one level, dive bombing is quite a good idea because you dive down, which means you're closer to the target, which means you're more likely to be more accurate, which means you need less ordnance to destroy it, which means you need less aircraft to do it, to do the job. So on a kind of sort of, on paper, it all looks great. Uh, and obviously in the in, in the kind of sort of Warsaw and over Rotterdam and, you know, in, in the, um, the attack across Sedan and all the rest of it, what's happening is a lot of these, these dive bombers have got complete control of the airspace. They're not being hassled too much by um, Dewatines or Moraines or even Hurricanes, and they can get on with it. What, what starts to come to the fore over Dunkirk is that it's one thing hitting a whopping great factory that's sort of absolutely static and filling a field or the edge of a town. It's quite another hitting a destroyer, which from 6,000 feet looks like a pencil and is wobbling around all over the place and zigzagging. And it's incredibly difficult because you've got a nanosecond in which to kind of hit it and, and chances are you're not going to. The second problem, of course, is that if you're well, in your, your Stuka, as you come out of your dive, on go the air brakes and you're almost at a standstill for a brief moment as you desperately try to climb up again. And for any waiting um, spitfire hurricane like a hawk, it just sort of pounces down on it and, it, and it's pretty easy meat. And, and the, kind of, the, the, the kind of failure of the dive bomber sort of reaches its peak during the Battle of Britain when the, when the Stukas are withdrawn after 10 days after, after Eagle Day. And, and so for me, it's, a, it's quite an interesting moment in the air war that, that suddenly the chinks in the dive bombing strategy of which the Luftwaffe high command are extremely wedded start to reveal themselves. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's an element of truth in that. Um, the, the Stuka is undoubtedly a very, very vulnerable aeroplane if you do not have air superiority. And uh, I don't think either side has air superiority over Dunkirk. 
Uh, in fact, I, uh, I think I'm right in saying that at one point on one day, and I, I don't want to think, you know, I want to stress this is not for the entire nine days. At one point, I think it's La Flotta 2 says, we've lost air superiority over Dunkirk. Um, now, that's obviously a snapshot from a diary on one day. Um, and uh, they were certainly quite surprised uh, on the 27th uh, at what happened to them over Dunkirk. They lost about 10% of the sorties, uh, which came as a bit of a shock, I think, compared to having had it all their own way or or, or significantly more their own way in in the battle thus far. That came as an unpleasant surprise. Um, and Kesselring in his memoirs talks about, you know, how the Spitfire um, really... And, of course, the Spitfire, as you said, only appears initially in, in these battles. Kesselring refers to the Spitfire being, the you know, the key. Well, of course, we all know that any Luftwaffe pilot who's shot down is always shot down by, shot a, Spitfire. Down by a Spitfire. He's never, ever oh. shot down by a Hurricane. Yeah. It can't possibly be a Hurricane that shot him down. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there's, you know, there's there's Spitfire phobia beginning to develop already in the Luftwaffe, where everything that shoots at you is a Spitfire. Well, it's not. well, it's a bit like being shot up by a Tiger tank, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the yeah. Same, all, yeah. all, all, all Panzer, all all Panzer fours, fours in Normandy are Tigers. We all know yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so, so there is that element, and uh, and the Spitfire squadrons do start operating along the French coast, not inside the French coast um, even before the Dunkirk they start operating again people tend to forget that some troops were pulled out from Boulogne and Calais before the Dunkirk evacuation yep, even yep. starts and the RF was operating along the coast flying fighter sorties along the coast uh, around Boulogne and Calais before you get to the 27th, uh, 26th, 27th and the start of the Dunkirk op. So the Germans meet the first Spitfires um, slightly before Dunkirk. Yeah. Uh, and they do think, ooh, ooh, this isn't quite so, yeah, this isn't quite so easy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's also the, a crucial time for fighter command pilots, isn't it? Because a lot of them who haven't had experience of France and, and who have, you know, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, I've just been rereading Cocky Dundas's um, memoirs and, you know, it's his, his first time over there, 92 Squadron kind of fly over Dunkirk. Um, obviously, they lose Roger Bushell famously or infamously, depending on which way you look at it. Uh, um, but but a lot of these guys get their first taste, don't they? You know, so that kind of sort of awful shock of um, uh, and, and discombobulation of going into air combat for the first time is 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 over i mean obviously for some people permanently um but but for others it's a crucial time to get experience as well yeah they do uh, you know and the, the spitfire squadrons really um have very little combat experience they've chased a few uh they've chased a few german reconnaissance aircraft and the odd the odd aircraft you know trying to bomb shipping off the coast um yep. that's all they've done Um, otherwise they've been practicing probably fighter command's famous fighter area attacks which proved so brilliantly successful number number one two three four five and six yeah that's right yeah um which they probably never ever practiced again after that (laughs) no i'm sure Uh, so so yeah they get they get blooded quite literally over over dunkirk and boulogne and and k and Um, of course um, 
famously, the Battle of Britain is about the, the RDF, the Observer Corps, and and the the Dowding system. For the Dunkirk battles, are they they're being put up to patrol? They're not being vectored at all, are they? They're they're, uh, or is there is there an attempt to to do any uh, proper vectoring? How's how's it working? What's the system? Well, uh, I don't think. Uh, and, and there's very little in the literature that talks about this. And I think the reason is twofold. One, the chain home radars on the East Coast, um, they just about uh, are able to pick up formations inside the French coast. Right. Uh, depending, it all depends on various things like height and what have you. But if yeah. you look at some of the few remaining uh, track tracing charts from the radars, and you look at the ones from the Battle of Britain, they they pick up the German raids just inside the Padicale. Um So by the time that appears on a radar, unless your fighter squadron is already over the area where the German raid is, you're not going to be able to get it to yeah. move, you know, 20 miles north or whatever in time to make an interception before it's dropped its bombs on Dunkirk or the beaches at the pan or wherever. Yep. So that's problem one. And problem two is they're still using TR9D HF radios. And uh, I, I remember reading at least one fighter pilot who said, oh, well, you know, once we'd, uh, once we'd left Hawkins or Manston, wherever he'd gone from and, and flew off, over the channel he said uh, yeah we never heard anything more from <laughs> never heard anything more from the UK uh, you know the the radios just weren't good enough to uh, mm. to allow the communication to be quick enough and you also have to remember that even during the Battle of Britain you know you've only got you've only really got four channels uh, on on these radios and you have to set the crystals as they were, because they're crystal radio sets, you have to set them before you set off, uh, and that's why you know uh, a, a sector station in the UK during the Battle of Britain is is not controlling more than four fighter squadrons because there's not enough channels. Yeah. Um, so you know, it really is. I mean, the, the amazing thing is, it's such a reminder that all this stuff is absolutely in its infancy at this stage. And, yeah. you know, and we have to remind ourselves that the downing system that, that gets put in place is the world's first fully coordinated air defence system. There is there is no other anywhere on the planet. And so no. there is a kind of experimental nature to the whole thing. I mean, you know, obviously they've been practising and testing it and training on it and training how to use it. But even as the summer of 1940 progresses, you know, obviously if you're a radar station, your ability to anticipate and predict what is coming your way is going to be much better by the end of August than it is at the beginning of July because you've had so much more experience of, of, of doing it. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, you know. So, so you know, and Dunkirk is, is really important, you know, but for, for that reason, for fighter command, it, it's, it might not be testing the air defence system, but it is it is giving these the opportunity of these for these Spitfire pilots, particularly, I mean, obviously a lot of the Hurricane pilots have already been, squadrons have already been flying, but the Spitfire pilots to, to get this crack. And I do remember that amazing story. I remember talking to Alan Wright, who was um, one of the quiet ones in, in 92 Squadron. He wasn't one of the Hellraisers. And, and his best, best friend was Pat Learmont. And on, on their first sortie, uh, and maybe it was the second sortie, but it was on the first day anyway, that 92 Squadron were over were over Dunkirk. Um, you know, he looks out over his starboard wing and there is his 
best best friend with whom he is sharing a room and and they both have sort of girlfriends and they go out as you know foursome socially and they're absolutely completely tied with one another um uh he sees him going down in flames and that's that's him and he then flies back again to dunkirk later that day so i think it was the first sortie and i remember i remember him so clearly talking to him in his home in devon and him saying to me that night i finally got home you know the second sortie over to dunkirk i had so much to think about i couldn't really afford to think too much about pat but he said i got into my room and there was his damp towel still on his unmade bed from this morning and he was no longer there he was now sitting at the bottom of the english channel and he said i had a hot bath and i wept like i've never wept before or since wow what a what an introduction to combat i mean mm-hmm. that's uh, you know if, if you're ever doubting the realities of war that's <laughs> that's bringing it home to roost isn't it yeah i mean it's yeah it was a pretty brutal introduction for many of them um yep. you know um there's no doubt about that and yeah park loses 60 fighter pilots over dunkirk yeah it's a lot yeah i mean that 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 that's a big hit isn't it? it doesn't 60 doesn't sound like very many but of highly trained single engine fighter planes just before the big battle that's going to come that's quite a big hit um, and, you know, I, I suppose it's also worth just mentioning, of course, that one of the reasons why the guys on the ground don't see fight, you know, the whole point about fighter planes is they're supposed to be high, you know, so uh, they're above the 10 times cloud and the oil smoky pool from the from the oil depots on fire and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and of course, <laughs> of course, both the Navy and the Army famously um, shoot at all airplanes because they're all German. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And, and they're still doing a, it in 1943. Uh, yeah, they are. And that's absolutely true because there's just two famous incidents with, uh, to his credit, Rear Admiral Wake Walker, the, who, who's made the senior naval officer uh, in Dunkirk. So he's over there. And uh, he's, he's actually on the destroyer Keith at one point, which gets sunk late, a bit later on. But he says... Um, some spitfires fly over and every ship starts firing at them so he says you know he, he's ordered the ceasefire gong to be sounded on keith and he said uh, the anti-aircraft gunner uh, on that destroyer simply ignored it and went on firing either because he couldn't hear it because he was firing or because he was ignoring it because he thought it was a german and he said every ship in the fleet was doing the same uh, and then a little bit later he's ashore with Captain Tennant, uh, who, of course, sadly, a bit later goes down with force said. But Captain Tennant is is the naval officer in the dockyard trying to control things in Dunkirk port itself. They're standing on the mole and a Lysander flies over. And again, everybody starts shooting at the Lysander. And Captain Tennant turns to Wake Walker and says, Oh, that damn chap, he's, he's always he's flying backwards and forwards all the time. Uh, you know, damn German. Oh. And uh, Wake Walker says, hmm, uh, well, that's a Lysander, and I think that's the reconnaissance that I requested <laughs> of the Dunkirk Moles to see whether, whether it was possible to get any more shipping in. <laughs> and what you? And that's he, absolutely he said, brilliant. He said, fortunately, his, his last words were to the effect, fortunately, he didn't seem to do the chap any harm. Well, I hope he was right. <laughs> well, that was all right then. 
I hope the Lysander got home. But you know, that was that was the Admiral who admitted that on two separate occasions. He, he, That's so funny. He knew that the Navy was gaily firing away at, at their own side. So every you know, when they can see the RAF, and of course, famously, most of the most of the patrol lines are further inland because you don't want the patrol line right over the Overhead. top of the no. port. It's bloody useless there. Yeah. Uh, so the Royal Absent Force is a bit further into France. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, and and as you say, you know, uh, another guy who who um, who got shot down and and picked up by the Navy was talking about the fact that the perspective from the ground, he said, was very different because there was a thin layer of cloud and he could see. Uh, that some ships uh, further over were were being bombed. Yeah, he could also see uh, a fighter, an RF fighter squadron, uh, and it's a fairly thin layer of cloud. He could see them up above the cloud, and all of the navy guys would say, "What's the matter with them? You know, the Germans are over there. Why aren't they chasing them?" And it, but he knew perfectly well that up above the cloud, it's very difficult to see bombers in the cloud if they're in the yep. cloud you may be only a mile away or half a mile away you you can't see them you yep. don't know where they are and he said another time he could see bombs falling on a ship below and he couldn't when he was actually flying he could not find the bomber that was dropping the bombs he was looking for it and he couldn't Amazing. find it incredible yeah, also i mean the sky is a big place isn't it it is <laughs> it is well, sir, that's absolutely fantastic. It really is. Yeah, um, unbelievable. Uh, so interesting. As per usual, this always happens. We always go, right, we're going to talk for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. half an hour. Here we are, 45 minutes later. 45 no, minutes. That's been fantastic. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 no need to apologise at all. It's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed Wonderful. it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Always. I do have to well, add one last one, actually, which was... Yeah, do. It, it was probably very fortunate uh, in the light of the point that we've just made about, you know, the Navy always shooting at the RAF and the army too it was probably very fortunate in retrospect though i have to say it it appears a dumb decision but one of the things the army did very early in the evacuation was to order all their heavy heavy anti-aircraft batteries all the 3.7 inch batteries to destroy their guns and ship all the blokes back home so all the army's heavy aa batteries <laughs> left Which could have been left early on now that was probably fortunate for the RAF, but also probably fortunate for the Luftwaffe. Yeah. And on that yeah. note, I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. That's absolutely brilliant. Thanks so yeah, much for thank joining you. us. Pleasure. Fascinating. Right. Well, that's it for today. Um, but we'll be back tomorrow for the next instalment of the Dunkirk story. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>